<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Everybody finds his or her way into the entertainment business in different ways. There's no tried-and-true method to achieving gainful employment in the world of film and television. Each tale of filmmakers able to make their livings telling stories is unique unto itself. But the world has changed at a rapid pace. We find ourselves surrounded by entertainment choices. Theatrical releases are primarily big studio blockbusters, and television seems to be stronger than it's ever been. And streaming choices from iTunes to Netflix to Hulu to Shudder to Amazon to Vudu to Vimeo to YouTube to Vimo and on and on and on are mind-bogglingly diverse. But the dirty secret behind all these choices is this. It's really hard to make money making independent movies. You'd be surprised how many directors of movies you've known and loved can't make a living off of their films. How many writers and directors have to hold down day jobs, editing, working as publicists, holding down an office job, or even temping to be able to pay the rent? Everyone thinks that movie makers are living the high life in Bel Air or oiling their tans in Malibu, and that's true of many of the studio and network stars. But the horror genre is mostly an independent one, and the independent world is in a constant state of upheaval, trying to find its bearings. A movie that cost half a million bucks, or two million bucks, or five million bucks, used to be able to recover its costs in worldwide sales, theatrical distribution, home video, and television rights. But since the digitization and democratization of filmmaking, the sheer volume of films out there has led to a glut of movies. A major indie distributor might only pay $50,000 for North American theatrical rights. Many really good films are made that never get bought or seen. The gamble is huge, and it's just getting worse as the number of streaming companies continues to grow, each of them hoping to be the new Netflix. I don't know what I would do or how I would start if I were just beginning a career as a filmmaker. It's never been easy to get access into the world of making movies for a living, but it's harder than ever now. I started as a writer, but wrote a ton of material before I ever was able to make a living at it, and that allowed me entree to the world of directing. We all have our stories, and each of them is unique. David Arquette got into producing and directing through a successful acting career. Genre fans probably know him best as Dewey from the first three Scream films, but his showbiz lineage began with his grandfather. We'll take a look into his remarkably diverse career after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. So, David, you got to start at an early age. You know, yeah. you, your grandfather was Charlie Weaver, who was yeah. a comedian uh, that I used to watch when I was a kid. Yeah. And so how did, how did the whole family showbiz thing begin? Well, it started a generation earlier. Um, uh, his father, Augustus Arquette, was on vaudeville. Oh, with, wow. Uh, yeah. 
with uh they did a like a little rinky dink show and then and then Cliff sort of uh from that learned he played the piano and toured uh really? yeah I forgot some big um some big uh, like touring like big band kind of thing oh how cool yeah he's, he's got a good name too i always forget sorry it's <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay but um and then then he started doing radio and from radio, he created the Charlie Weaver character, which is kind of a country bumpkin sort of guy. Yeah, he's he was an old he played an old man character, was slightly senile, always wrote letters home to mama. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> got a could, letter from mama. Yeah, he yeah. could get away with joking about you know the town drunk and the town floozy and all this <laughs> stuff where where he could get away with stuff. You yeah, know, like because you know, he was an old man. Yeah, yeah. like uh, how high do you have to be to jump out of an airplane? Depends on how many shots you took, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know that kind That's of thing. Great. But um, so so he did the the radio in New York, and um, and then and then his and then television happened, and his yeah. career died, and radio died. So he's sitting back. He was semi-retired, and uh, now he'd become the old man that he'd always been playing. <laughs> he didn't have to put he, the salt and pepper in his yeah, hair. Yeah, he didn't have to wear a, a gray wig anymore. <laughs> and uh, he's sitting there, and he's watching uh, The Tonight Show with Jack Parr. And Jack Parr says, whatever happened to Charlie Weaver? And he just jumped up in his chair. He said, well, well, and he, uh, the next day, he called Jack Parr, and he said, well, I'm, I'm still here. I'm uh, and they said, well, come on the show. And How he, great. He created a visual for it where he had a squashed hat, an uneven tie, suspenders, a handkerchief in his back pocket, and uh, and some little wire rim glasses, and, and that was it. Mustache. How great. <laughs> and he was on his way, yeah. Well, you you must not have known him much. I mean, you you were no. very young when he passed, right? Yeah, yeah. He was. I was about four when he passed, but yeah. I did see him on the television and they would tell me that it was him and i met him a couple times yeah and i met him a couple times so it was really great to see him uh i mean just get to know him by watching the old hollywood squares he was the bottom left hand corner (laughs) he had a permanent space he's all friends with a bunch of the the old timers paul lynn and and uh you know so there's a comedy background there now Mm -hmm. the next generation was your mom and dad your dad was also an actor, yeah, and uh, both of them were creative. So w- you were brought up on a commune, right? Yeah, I was born on a commune. My my parents were hippies. They met in New York City, and um, my dad was an actor. He was, you know, always trying to get into um, the a- actor studio. And oh, really? Yeah, wow. and never really got accepted, oh. which was such like a, ooh. But he like he dated all these girls. There is a rumor. I'm not sure if it was rumor, but you know it is family lore. That uh, <laughs> sorry, I have to take off my jacket. Yeah, that um, he and James Dean were dating the same girl. Oh, really? And oh, James okay. Dean dated him after my my dad, and she had kept a red jacket of his. Oh, and then the red jacket was what inspired it, yeah. him to wear it in uh, Rebel Without a Cause. <laughs> That's one of the stories. I don't know if it's print true the legend. Print yeah, the legend. print the legend exactly. <laughs> so, what was your life like as a kid on a commune with yeah. two creative parents? Well, it's pretty interesting. It was like this religious philosophy that was based in Hindu, Islam, Buddhism, and but it accepted any religion that you sort of believed in. 
It was all about, uh, well, the guy who started it was from Indonesia, and his name was Bapak, they called him. And he came to visit them in this community where about 30 families moved in the middle of Virginia in a place called Front Royal. And he came there and he said, what are you guys doing here? This isn't what this philosophy is about. This philosophy is about discovering what your own personal given talent is, going out into the world and making the world a better place. So if you're an artist, you should be where there's galleries and you could sell your art. And if you're an architect, you should be where they're building houses. So everyone was like, oh, so my dad and my mom went off to Chicago. So uh, they were in a commune yeah. established by a guy who said there shouldn't be a commune. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, he was, he, he was uh, from Indonesia. So right. this was just sort of the American offshoot. And they were from the late 60s. So they were kind of escaping the hick, hippie drug generation, just kind of like going to sort of find some peace in, in wilderness and all that. But it did drive my family to uh, Chicago, where my dad got into like Second City and, and improvisation. Oh, really? wow. and, yeah, my dad taught in Second City and um, how great in, in Venice, and uh, and he was studied with Paul Sills and uh, Viola Spolin, who was like the originator of uh, all the sort of theater games. Mm. They did a bunch of plays and and just really great stuff. So that was really good. He did something called the committee, which is a big ah, big, yeah. yeah, huge comedy yeah. improv comedy group yeah, that like people like Fred Willard came out exactly. of. And, yeah, Fred Willard was my dad. My dad was in uh, Waiting for Guffman and and uh, a little part in in uh, the the dog one. <laughs> oh yeah, best yeah, in show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. best in show. Love those things. So that yeah. was sort of all the group of uh, you know the those guys. Christopher Guest was really great for getting him. John Candy was really great about hiring him. This is, you know, my dad was a working actor for 45 years. So How amazing. Yeah, and when there was like a um an actor strike, <laughs> the the refrigerator was bare. Like we would, <laughs> you know, that was literally that was it. it. When you're an act, you know, a professional actor, it's it's like, you know, it's you, you get a national commercial, not a like you know, okay, we'll have food for the year. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Or something like that. And you do like do a wagon train or yeah, something. <laughs> exactly. You do industrial films, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. But that was really cool. Just to go back for a second, my dad and mom met in New York and my dad was an actor and and, and studying and really doing plays. Uh there's a really tragic story. Oh about <laughs> Do you want to tell it? Yeah, yeah it's pretty it. sad. It's really sad actually. It's uh, heartbreaking to tell, but it's uh, it's really interesting. My dad was in Summerstock, and he had this big role, an amazing play. And it, his father was really famous at the time, but came up to see him in this play. And uh, this is, like, unheard of. Like, it's so embarrassing because it shows an actor's ego, but, uh-huh. but and also, like, the craziness of it all. But... Uh, my dad was doing this play and at intermission, my grandfather put on his Charlie Weaver oh, outfit no. and came out on stage and just tore the oh, no. place up <laughs> and had no like, like conscience about it like, being this, your father's show. His yeah. time and oh, his moment. God. And such an important lesson. To, like, just it sounds know very that. Joan Crawford. Yeah, I know it, it really does <laughs> wow. in like this comedy way. He, in his defense, thought it would like bring the Boost, crowd alive yeah. and people would be excited, but such a like a, how a, did your dad feel about it? I think it like really crushed him and and sort of stuck with him for a long wow. time, yeah, my dad 
you know, we had a, a rough time of it all. And then, but then toward the end with people like Christopher Guest and John Candy and really stepping up and, and honoring him, giving him roles was really a, a beautiful sort of end of his life so that he did find his place and, and find, found his gift. And he was great. He'd do haikus, improvisational haikus. Oh, wow. With like suggestions from the audience and like two minutes or. Uh, well, whatever the, he'd put them yeah. all together. Places like the committee, they kind of teach you to be able to think on your feet in, oh, yeah. in a performing way. Have you done much on the improv I, world? Too? I did. I studied with Paul Sills. I went and took a course with him, and it's just so brilliant. The guy is just such a master at it. And you know, all of it. My dad studied with Roy London too, toward the end oh, of his yeah. life. Yeah. And ultimately, it's about being real. It's always about being real. It's about being in the moment. It's about. Um, you know, love as far as like Roy London stuff goes and acting from a place of everybody sort of wants love. And sometimes we, you know, act out, you know, because of it. And sometimes we, you know, cower because of it, whatever it is. So to find like that kind of stuff, I look for that. But when my dad met my mom, um, my mom was a pinup model so she had done uh-huh. a bunch of like nude, to, they call them cheesecake photos. Oh, yeah. But um, yeah, and they were like kind of out there. She burlesque danced briefly, and her name wow. was Bootsy Bellows. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I named, why I named our club Bootsy Bellows. And at the club, we have all these pictures of my mom on the cover nice. of like, yeah, all these like old men's magazines oh, and God. stuff. But it looks Gallery so like, and yeah, that. totally. So, so then they, yeah, moved to Chicago. Now, you're one of five siblings, yeah. and all of you act, right? Yeah, yeah. we do. I mean, I know your brother uh, passed away. Yeah, Alexis. Alexis, who was uh, an amazing, everybody loved him. He was so funny and yeah. original and unique. Yeah, absolutely. But what was that like? Uh, where are you in the chain? Which number I'm are you? I'm the youngest. The baby yeah, of the family. Yeah, and Rosanna really broke, broke through for our generation. She ran away when she was like 15 and lived with a, a friend of the family on the uh in LA and then probably around 16 or something she got her first job she faked an epileptic seizure oh my god in a casting director's office where she wasn't uh scheduled to to do it but the character had uh, epilepsy so she just faked a seizure and they were like ah and she's like she <laughs> sat up and <laughs> acting. acting yeah <laughs> and she got the role which is crazy wow. and she worked with like i think she might have worked with Betty Davis on it or something crazy oh uh, an old thing but so she really then like did a bunch of incredible work oh i'm a did, huge fan yeah. of hers yeah i mean I yeah. too. she's yeah. she's so getting great. a little resurgence now she just Absolutely. did a, yeah. a youtube bread uh uh television show that's coming out soon oh cool swipe left i think oh good title yeah yeah Yeah, i like that and um yeah so she she just did a series of like she had such a great career and did such amazing big movies and marty scorsese yeah all the best of the film after hours was like that's such a classic in the big blue which america doesn't know as much as europe loved it yeah, phenomenal the deep water diving. Yeah, so yeah, she really diving. like reestablished yeah. our name as far as like, you know, something. Then Patricia uh, broke through, and yeah, and Alexis big... when the wedding singer and, and yeah, my brother it's... Richmond is amazing, incredible, and it's my favorite Arquette trivia is who delivered the box to Brad Pitt in Seven. 
Oh, that was Richmond Arquette. All right, <laughs> it's a really good, it's a really good Jeopardy question or that's something. Good. You know what I mean? Well, there's always an Arquette around. Yes, you know, wherever right. you turn, there's an Arquette available on there's a station. An Arquette in the box. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's great. So, tell me what life was like in this kind of uh, bustling, creative household of all these artists. Did anybody ever have a regular job? Uh, we had regular jobs. I mean. I worked at a newsstand and I delivered newspapers. Uh, I sold maps to Stars Homes. Wow. (laughs) I got flashed when I was like 14 (laughs) years old by some perv. (laughs) It's so creepy. But But uh, now they're selling maps to your home. Yeah, it actually happened. When I moved to this one area, there were like these buses that were going by all the time. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is payback. (laughs) But then one time my daughter and her friend were like, they were really young. They were probably about five. And they were like doing this like circus and they planned this whole circus. They're like, dad, you have to invite your friends over so we can have someone perform for the circus. And I was like, I called all my friends in the neighborhood and no one was around. And I was like, I don't know what to say. None of my friends are around. They're not picking up. And they said, come on, Dad. I said, all right. So I walked outside and I waited for the next bus. The bus <laughs> came by and I said, come on in. And it was this whole bus of Australian people. And they were all like, oh, they what's going on? They were probably thrilled. It was. Yeah. But my daughter and her friend were like, oh, we're really going to have to perform. Yeah, we got a full house. We yeah. better do good. Yeah, yeah. So I'm are your kids performers as well? Yeah, my daughter's an incredible singer. Yeah. Oh, wow. She just sang a... Um, she just did this showcase, and yeah, she really loves acting, loves singing. But we're keeping it all non-professional until she gets older, you know. Right, it's just good, sort of, good parenting. Yeah, it's just a, it's you know, it's just such a crazy thing. I had my first job at seventeen, and that was still kind of like pretty insane. Yeah, you know? that's young. It is young, I guess. So I didn't yeah. think about it at well, the time. Well, but yeah, your life is not like the standard, you know, middle American life. No, no. So. Was everybody living at home at the same time? How how what was the span of ages? Um, how far apart? A lot of us you? were. I mean, Rosanna always moved out and like started her own life early. Um, but we all lived there at different times. I mean, you know, through adolescence, I think Patricia yeah. went to live with Rosanna for a little while. Yeah. But um, yeah, we all lived there. It was a really, it was a great house. I mean, there was a lot of love, but it was also. You know, it's comedy and tragedy. I mean, yeah. We were like, we would fight like crazy. Alexis was like transgender, so I, we would share a room. And at one point, Alexis moved into the closet. Like she was. <laughs> so he did I the like, opposite. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> okay, he went, and lived in this closet. My brother's in the closet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was, it was such a a big like craftsman house, and it had these built-in drawers and a window that opened. So and it fit like a single bed. So it was like a little room. Wow. But uh, yeah. So was did the family gather to to watch movies together at home? Did they go out to the movies together? Did you go to theater? Did what uh, was what was my, it like? Uh, we did go to movies once in a while and stuff. I went to movies a lot on my own. Yeah. There, I would just like um. We didn't have a lot of structure. We didn't have a lot of boundaries. It really was a sort of a problem as far as that goes because, you know, kids need that and everything. And, like, you know, my mom worked, my dad worked, uh, and so I'd have to cook for myself a lot. And mm-hmm. and then on the weekends, 
uh, I would just take a bus to the movie theater, which was two movie theaters in one. It was right at Pan Pacific Park. Oh, okay. And, uh, so you're, we're talking L.A. Yeah, yeah okay. I grew up, we grew up in L.A. since I was five. Yeah, me too. I was yeah. born here, you know, oh, and cool. I was one of four within five years no, of awesome. each other. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah. You don't meet a lot of people that grew up in L.A. No, definitely not. But so do you remember, what were the kinds of movies you would go see? So I would go, I don't know, they would let me in to see anything. So I'd see everything from Animal House to the French Lieutenant's Wife. I don't know why yeah. that movie, for some reason, Meryl Streep was yeah. in it, I guess. And I watched it like a thousand times. I think there were breasts in it at some point or something. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, let me wait for this part again. <laughs> but it's a super dramatic like yeah, movie. Fair. and yeah. I haven't seen it in years. But um, Is so, there a movie that inspired you to want to do movies? Oh, man. I mean, uh, yeah, Time Bandits was really, really? interesting to me. The I time, loved that film. Me too. I saw that alone, and I was like, what did the, happen to the parents? Like, You know, I'm, I actually helped that movie get released by stop. Avco Embassy. I was doing publicity at Avco Embassy on their genre films, and I'd heard that there's this new movie with guys from Monty Python in it. And so I told the acquisition guy, Lenny Shapiro, about this movie, oh and he, they bought it. They saw it and bought it. And oh my it, I that can't awesome. believe that I did. Because it's one of my favorite films of oh all time. God. I love it. It was so great. That was just brilliant. So that movie kind of warped my head. I was like, whoa. I couldn't sort of wrap my head around what I was watching. But I loved it. And uh, So that, did it make you want to perform? Did it make you want to make movies? We always were performers. Like, yeah. When, as far back as I could remember, we played this game called Animal Crackers where you'd get animal crackers and you'd pull one out and be a tiger and you'd say, all right, what's this? And you'd have to act like a tiger to get the cracker. Ah, so little thing. That was okay. like one of my earliest memories. And then we'd do all kinds of different uh, theater games growing up. So that was always part of our our, our thing. Um, my mom, she loved writing and, and uh, putting on little plays that are – summer camp with the whole the the sort of religious philosophy we grew up in it was called subud and um they would have international camps so for camp instead of going you know just to the wilderness we'd go to italy or oh my god portugal wow england and we'd meet all these kids from all over and it was crazy because we'd go there at like 14 and then there's no age limit for drinking. So we'd like, let's <laughs> <laughs> going bananas. Wow. And like, you know, meeting international older girls and like, it was just <laughs> out of control. It was so like crazy. We'd just <laughs> cause havoc. But it was inspirational too. Oh, I mean, you sure. it must have freed your creativity in ways that most people would not have been introduced to the arts. Yeah. Our, our whole thing was just heavy load on the arts like yeah, we did everything yeah. we all painted we all uh you know performed we all you know wrote sang songs and did all kinds of do stuff do you still paint i do i recently took a a course uh bob ross instructional oh, yeah. oh course my God. <laughs> to, because i i just he's so calming and all the stuff and it's just and he's so amazing the way he paints so fast i was always like they're sort of just uh obsessed with it and uh, just relaxed me so i i i was i was just watching one time and i was like i wonder if you can take take this less like course still if you can yeah. paint these things that he's painting so i called up the bobross.com and then 
they they were like, yeah, you know, there's a local instructor you can find. Wow. So I met this guy, and he was amazing. And I took this course, and then uh, I asked him, like, how did you get certified to do this? And he said, well, it's a three-week course in New oh. Smyrna Beach. And <laughs> so then this like, past summer, I went I went there, and I did it. And uh, and now I've, I've taught, like, 30 people how to paint these. Really? Like, so you're not only painting, you're a painting trees. teacher. <laughs> yeah, which I love. I love teaching. Yeah. But you have to really, I just recently had this thing where we went to this school for troubled kids and I tried to do a quick, like a quick version of it, but I brought the wrong material and it was a complete disaster. <laughs> they were like, oh, this is the worst painting I've ever painted. Now you did a like, series of films about these kids, right? Uh, didn't you uh, do Oh yeah, I did, a, I did a show called Dream School. Yeah, right, that right. was really, really Was it inspired fun. by this uh, group? Or? I guess the the... Desire to teach was inspired by that, uh-huh. you know. Yeah, so Dream School was cool. It was about a bunch of kids who were, you know, uh, you know, uh, at risk of dropping out of school. So they provided these like really cool sort of experience where they have uh, just a bunch of different people. Uh, I can't remember right now. Fifty Cent was there, so he mentored some of them. Oh and, wow! And um, so celebrities would come in and, yeah. and teach, and uh, hence Dream School. Yeah, right? yeah, okay. exactly. That exactly. makes sense. So, well, what was your first experience on film? You said you were seventeen years old. My first experience. My my brother actually filmed something when we lived in Chicago. Uh, I remember him doing some little like you know, little thing with puppets and uh-huh. uh, puppets back then too. Wow. Uh, yeah, we always had marionettes for some reason. Um, and then uh, and then my friend filmed something when I was sort of in like probably about third grade where I was just like this giant kid who was just completely burning and <laughs> destroying all these Star Wars figures and just like, ah, <laughs> like a Godzilla kind of thing. Nice. But, uh, David Zilla. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've, I've called him and I was like, do you still have that footage? But he doesn't have it uh, anymore. What but about your first professional gig? My first professional gig was The Outsiders. Oh, okay. The Coppola movie. Yeah. yeah. Which oh, one? actually, it was uh, the TV version. Oh, the T. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Which was based on the Coppola film. But, yeah. And it was, uh, yeah. yeah, he produced it with uh, Fred Roos and, and, uh, it was uh, it was interesting. I mean, I had I had uh, auditioned for a really long time, like just sporadically, and just nothing but rejection, just like years of rejection. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, and then uh, and then in I was in high school, and some girls came up to me, and they're like, you know, they're doing a play, and they can't find the lead to it. It's an original play by the this amazing teacher I had named Ben DeBaldo, and he's really the one who sort of steered me in the direction of acting. So I was a graffiti writer at the time, and breakdancer, oh. like just running around town, getting in trouble, ditching school, you know, partying with my friends. And then uh, they told me about this play, and they're like, "You get to ride a motorcycle through the auditorium." And I was like, "I'm in." And then he was like, "You got to sing. You got to audition and sing." So I sang, uh, I don't know, some <laughs> some silly song. I'm the type of guy that can never settle down. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the wanderer. Yeah, yeah the yeah. wanderer. Yeah, and then okay. my friends were in the back making fun of me. So I did that play, <laughs> and then I got more confidence. I did a oh, and I always sort of had this thing that uh, I don't want to act because my family does it. It's not for me. I don't know. Uh-huh. If it's, and then, so you're rebelling against the arts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah kind of. Instead of yeah, okay. yeah, and then uh. Ben was like, listen, just do this comedy monologue. We'll go and do it at this uh, drama teachers association, uh, you know, competition. 
and they'll give you a number. And they gave me a number, and I did this thing, and I came in second place. Ah. And uh, I was like, oh, okay, so I got some, I got something that I should go for. So that gave me the confidence to get my first job. And then that was The Outsiders, and that was really fun. We got to do 13 episodes uh, on film, so wow. and they were hour long. So nice. I like had this really introduction to, oh, this is how you work with a camera. Right, the construction of film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then after that was another remake of a film, uh, Parenthood into a TV show. Right. Yeah. And then I did that. And that was half hour single camera. Well, so then that, that sort the, of started to my our point. audience. You're probably your first thing of note to them yeah. was probably Buffy. Yeah. Yeah. So, that happened right around that time, too. Yeah. It was funny. When, when I was doing The Outsiders, Luke Perry was living at our house. Oh, he, really? Uh, rented out a house, a room from my mom. And, and, uh, we call him the pigeon killer because we had these pigeons that would hide up in the little, uh, you know, the little eaves of the uh, old craftsman house. And then they were like, you know, breeding and, and bugs. And like, it was like horrible. And Luke was from like, uh, I forgot where he's from. He's like from Kansas, K- K- Kentucky or something. Kansas Midwest, or something. Yeah. yeah, somewhere in the Midwest. So he didn't care about like he, animals or guns. So we got a BB gun. He started picking them off. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> really, I'm a vegan. Was, stop, stop. I know, I know. It was t- terrible. It's terrible. It's a horror show in itself. But uh, he was great. So he's living with us. I got the outsiders. I was living high on the hog and, like, you know, making money for the first time. Bought my first car. And and, uh, and then we went one, one season, we got canceled. Ah, yeah. Hubris. Was, uh, oh. <laughs> but then uh, Luke gets this big he, he, show. He gets a pilot called 90210. And they were both for Fox. So we got canceled. The poor kids got canceled. And the rich kids got. <laughs> and then he went on to like superstardom. So it was There's no amazing. justice. Yeah. But then he got me the part on. Um, on Buffy. On Buffy. Well, he put in a good word. And, and uh, yeah. So that was really fun to do. So was that your first real genre experience? I mean, yeah. Yeah. It was. It was. So I'd done something else, something called like the Black Box or something, a zombie Civil War movie. Oh, yeah. At some point yeah, around yeah. then, too. Well, tell me how Scream came about. Because Dewey, you yeah. know, was supposed to die at the end of the first one, yeah. right? Yeah. And then there were tests, and people really liked Dewey. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it, was, it was funny. That's a good story, too. Well, I'd done a little indie movie called Johns that had gotten oh, yeah. some heat at, yeah. at um, Sundance. So that kind of like got me like in the he's cool actor world for a second. Indie cool. Yeah, yeah indie cool. So uh, I was coming off of that, and um, and I, I think somehow that had gotten me. And Wes wanted me to ro- try out for the role of Billy, which Skeet Oldrich played. But uh, when I read it, I loved like the part of Dewey because it was – Written as a big meathead, but I was like, he could kind of go in a different way. He could just be like a meathead, but he could just be kind of like, I like the idea of just twisting a cop that's kind of insecure. It's just yeah, funny yeah. to me. Like, it's like not really comfortable being a cop. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. And, you so know, was that on the page? Them. Was was that, was that he written to be that kind of insecure cop or was that something he you brought He was more written it? to be dumb, like the dumb <laughs> cop. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which I still played him sort of in that world, but more of a heart and more insecure and like, you know, and I think that sort of added... To, like it, the, 
they expanded on that part of it. Well, everybody loves it when an actor brings more than what's on the page to yeah. it. And so that's uh, the best when that can happen. Yeah. So, so who knew that he was going to be an icon? So tell me, uh, tell me how that came about. Tell me about your, well, meeting, Wes, your first so meeting funny. with Wes. Wes was like, you know, while we were filming it, he's like, you know what? Let's, uh, let's just throw you on a gurney here and they'll roll you out. We won't know if you live or die. I was like, oh, thanks, Wes. <laughs> so they did that. And then there was, they used to give out these little passes for, uh, you could, because I went to Fairfax High School right in LA. So, so. did my dad. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. So then we would, uh, you know, get these things. Do you want to see this movie? And then they said, do you want to see this movie? Uh, I wasn't going to school at the time. I was already graduated. But they was like, do you want to see this movie on Melrose? And uh, and it was, it was Scream. I'm pretty sure it was Scream. I was like, oh. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. So we went, and then they saw me, and they were like, David, you can't be here. This is like a <laughs> screening. So they, I Oops. sat in the back, and I got yeah. to see Wes watch a movie, and he was just like, he was so funny to watch. He loved scaring the audience. He would just yeah. sit there like, <laughs> like, he would just get such a kick out of seeing the audience jump. I love that, too. That was one yeah. of my favorite parts about directing. Well, that was, uh, well, it was originally called Scary Movie, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was originally a scary movie. It was a, uh, but you know it. Uh, I, I, I know, I know. That then they went out to make the spoofs, and now yeah. people still call me Doofy, which is uh, awkward. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I imagine. I'm like I'm well, Dewey. What uh, What was that first meeting with Wes Craven like? What uh, What were the conversations? It was great, and I just brought up the fact that I think uh, I would be better as Dewey, and he said that's really interesting. He hadn't thought about that. And then, uh, I don't know, it just, it was such a blessing. Wes was really such a, a mentor and such a guiding force. Like, throughout the whole, all three of them, my mother was dying in the second one. I was going through a really hard time. Jeez. Me and Courtney had sort of broken up, and, mm-hmm. and uh, that was sort of hard. And we were on location, and I had a band. This was the year 2000? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's the worst name in band history. It was like <laughs> oh, 1999. Year 2000, bro. Little <laughs> micro like time capsule, man. <laughs> man. Yeah, we were. It was crazy. Yeah. I was just nuts, breaking bottles on my head, thinking I'm, you know, in the germs or something. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a rough time of life for you, and yeah. Uh, and but- Wes sat me down. And he said, "Listen, uh, Courtney really likes you, so." Just get your act together. You guys make it work. And, you know, you got a really beautiful future ahead of you. So just take care of yourself. So he was just really sweet. And then when I started directing, he really was helpful in that regard, too. He told me all these movies to watch. And, you know, so I I really did a, I can't remember half of them now, but I did a real research of all these, you know, uh, crazy old films. Well, I remember when we were doing Riding the Bullet. Yeah. Uh, you would be sitting in the makeup trailer yeah. with the KNB guys, and we'd yeah. be throwing titles back and forth. Yeah, and that was talking. all around the same time. Yeah, that was it. it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, you know, what, 2004? Yeah, you helped me with that too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was really your first makeup gig, wasn't it, where you had makeup effects, extensive well, uh, makeup effects? Buffy, I had ears. Right, right. That's about it. But this, yeah. you lost the top of your head. Yes, this you, one was a real <laughs> the deal. brain and everything. Exposed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So tell me how... Is there a difference when you're in a genre film to to how you approach what you do? Um, 
No, I mean, you just, you have to be aware of the story and, and like where the scares are and what's, where your character is. So you, you just help the story be told. Um, uh, you want to, I don't know, I guess there's some excitement about it. You know, there, every, it's like everything else, like the more real you can make it and the more down to earth and like, the more you can ground something that's kind of like unbelievable sometimes is really important. So. Well, that's what what uh, excited me about working with you on writing the bullet because you wouldn't think of David Arquette as the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, and to be a guy who's really a minion of Satan. Yeah, yeah. And, and capable of this stuff. So the sense of humor that you brought to it doubled the intensity of the, the fear. Yeah, you know, yeah, the, the level of that. And you had a tough job because almost all of your work was in the car, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, which we did basically poor man's process. For right. those people who don't know what that is, you're not really driving. You're just moving lights past and you're sitting there and then yeah. grips are bouncing the car to make it look like it's moving and, yeah. and all of that. And, and, but you're sitting in a makeup chair for three hours a day yeah. and then you're going in there. So you didn't see much of Vancouver. <laughs> no, 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 but... Movie making so fun anyway. It's like, you know, I just, I don't know. I I love it more and more now. So you just kind of like, I don't know, you love being on the set. You love working with other actors and working with the director and, you know, just discovering the character. That's always such a gift, really. It was such a great experience. Uh, Jonathan Jackson is another yeah. really great underrated actor yeah. who was fantastic in that movie. I can't imagine anyone else playing that part. Yeah. And, it was such a great thing when we did our premiere. You and Frank Darabont and Toby Hooper were the three oh my who showed up to support. Oh and it gosh. was such an emotional night for me because wow. this movie meant a lot to me. It was the most personal thing I'd ever wow. done oh, and man. painful and yeah. based on losing a parent and yeah. losing a brother and stuff like that. Right. And so it was so great to work with you, bringing it to life, and, and Jonathan, you know, having – He's doing things that I did in my life oh, wow. during the course of making this movie. And I just yeah. want to thank you for it uh-huh. being such an important part of my life. Oh, know? thank you, man. It That's was really, so sweet. You're really, really like one of the kindest people in general. And, you know, you really are just a wonderful mentor as well. And well, you know, working with you was just a, just a great time. I mean, we got to do more. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Do more. I'd yeah. love to. Well, tell me. When you decided to direct, yeah. to direct movies, your first one was The Tripper, and it's a horror film. Yeah. What was the motivation be- behind that being your <laughs> first attempt? I, it was just an idea. I mean, you know how we all have ideas that, like, percolate even just whenever they come together. But this was from real life. I was at this crazy concert called Reggae on the River, and we were on drugs, <laughs> <laughs> heavy drugs. And we were, like, watching... Uh, all these hippies running around and I was just like, and it's getting dark and we're in the forest and there's a river right there. And I was just like, it would be crazy if uh, someone came out and started hacking all these hippies out. Cause it was like, <laughs> you know, it was like, especially like, what would we do in this state? So, um, and you were brought up in a hippie household. Yeah, too. exactly. So that was the germ of the idea. And then I grew up also, uh, during the Reagan years, and I remember specifically the day where I started seeing homeless people everywhere. And I was like, what's going on? Because we lived like, I lived on Melrose and Gower. My friends lived on Kingsley and Third, and we'd bike, 
to each other's houses. And there was right in Kingsley and third, there was just this Seven Eleven right there. And it just became this little hub for like a lot of homeless people. And it was just like weird. Like, and then my mother or father explained to me that, uh, that Reagan had shut down a bunch of the mental health institutes and, and took that, away all their funding and they just yeah, threw they them just out threw on, them the on the street. Yeah. And so that was the other germ of the idea. I was like, how can I, and then it was like funny and looking into, Reagan, he really hated hippies. And it was just like this left right, like kind of political satire. <laughs> like, I, yeah. don't, I don't know. I always liked it, like sort of political satire in a way. Oh, yeah. Well, is, is so you wanted to make a movie that meant something more than just telling a story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I always think it's about, ultimately, it's about love. Everything's sort of about love in the long run. And even like we found the, the love in that, like he loved her and, you know, he was like her, his daughter, essentially, who's like, you know, uh, I forgot her name now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Reagan's daughter, because um, oh. she got into drugs and stuff. Yeah. So we sort of like yes, made yes. that little correlation. So I don't know. I guess. Patty uh, Davis. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So I didn't want to, like, uh, I just, I don't know. I didn't want it to be too heavy-handed. I always loved the genre. I, I think, like, as a as a teenager, you just, it's one of those things where it's like, you start watching them and it's like, you know, the ability of a film to inspire emotion, like, yeah, yeah. you know, really gets you, like, on the edge of your seat. And, and, uh, and also to embrace something that your parents wouldn't. Yeah, you know, is yeah, whistling past the graveyard and and yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so and then you know, a lot of them like have a little moment of sex or drugs or whatever. Yeah. So I don't know. It just seemed like <laughs> something. <laughs> I, I love the genre anyway, and and I don't know. I I just wanted to explore it. Do you remember the first horror film that you saw, or that had an effect on you? I mean, I remember seeing Halloween way back, and that was. Incredible. Yeah. I love that. That's 1978. Wow. And now this Halloween, there's going to be yeah. a new reboot. Oh, my yeah. gosh. That's so exciting. From this very studio where we're sitting. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm so excited yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a really great one. I remember seeing that in the theaters and just like <gasps> the closet scene for some reason just super sticks out in my yeah. head. And getting poked in the eye was just another like <laughs> thing that. Oh, with the coat hanger? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that, it's like, hard to believe this was 40 me. years ago. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Your parents did let you see anything, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I stuck out and I would see, I think I'd see all that stuff alone too. So I'd be like extra like freaked out. You know, Hollywood back then was kind of creepy. Like people would do weird stuff. Yeah, like, the and Boulevard was really a yeah. nasty place during yeah. the 70s and 80s. Oh, yeah. yeah, Venice Beach, like all those areas were just so oh, yeah. creepy, like all these weirdos doing weird stuff. Do you think L.A. had a lot to do with your perspective on film, being surrounded by the industry and living in the heart of where it was done maybe had an effect on you going from the hippie theatrical life into television and movies i don't know like we it was so weird because we grew up in a real little hollywood like all the people we ran around <laughs> with as teenagers are like the mega stars today mm. leo and charlise and drew and just a bunch of uh, people like uh so it was always this weird like we were all just 
teenagers, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah. and like, and, you know, loving movies and loving, like, just acting and trying to get these roles and kind of, like, competitive with each other. And, and then people would get different things and kind of, like, start popping. And um, So I don't know. I always kind of had this weird relationship with it because my I'd seen my sister shoot up. I'm just still a teenager, go like awkwardly going through things, and she's like, you know, on a, a big screen, you right. know, taking her top off, which is all, also awkward. Like, <laughs> yes, oh, that's I'm my sister. This is like a whole different thing. So, um, so, so it was always this weird thing. And my dad like had this hard relationship. It was always hard to get work and this and that. One of the things we had a rat in our house one time. My dad bought one of those. Uh, uh, a habit trail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the yeah traps with a heart. It was called. Oh it had, yeah, like, the have a heart trap. Yeah, have yeah. a heart trap. So yeah. it would trap him in this trap, thing, and he trapped kill. it. Yeah. And then he had an audition at Paramount, which is just a few blocks away. <laughs> and he took the have a and he released the rat in the studio. Oh great! Yeah. It really is my dad's sort of sense of humor. Him like getting even. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's the little things. It's the little things. Or feeding the cats. There's over like 120 cats in in Paramount Studios at night or something. That's right. The feral cats of yeah, Paramount. Yeah, are yeah, famous. yeah. Well, let's talk about another less known part of your career: yeah. the wrestling. Yes. So yeah. you were world championship wrestling yeah. champion. Yeah, you were, I, I was. You were the guy. One-time champ. So tell me how <laughs> that, that began. That's what my and, T-shirt's going to be. Yeah, one-time one champ. Uh, we were number one. Yeah, yeah I was never pinned. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, I did a movie called Ready to Rumble. Yeah. And um, and it was really fun. I, was, I got to work with, like, I loved wrestling as a kid. I went to see... Hulk Hogan and, and Andre the Giant fight at the LA Sports Arena. Wow. Touch Andre the Giant's back. I couldn't believe how big <laughs> this guy was. Yeah, like oh, literally man. fought my way through like Ugh! this big <laughs> sweaty, pimply back. Yeah, yeah. No, literally. I remember it's like, oh, he's so greasy. Uh and then um and then so when I got older, uh this project came up. And Scott Kahn's another kid we grew up with. We oh, did wow. graffiti against Scott Kahn. Yeah, yeah. And we, we were we were having this crazy time one time. And a friend of ours, Scott Kahn was in a crew that said they were KGB. We were KGB. We'd been KGB since 1982. So then this is a bunch of years later, and they're claiming that they're KGB. And one of our friends had turned into a gangster. So he showed up, and he was like, huh? And he took out a gun and held it to... The kid Shifty from, uh, I don't know, he's, he had this butterfly song. Uh, his name was Shifty. His real name was Seth. And then uh, he held it to Seth's head and was like, see, you're from KGB now. Uh, and we were like, oh, never don't mind. do that. Don't do that. Like, it's oh. not that important. It's only like uh, <laughs> oh, art. Yeah, that was a crazy L.A. growing up background. Sorry, I went to a crazy tangent there. But, no, um, that, that, those are the best parts. <laughs> okay, yeah. okay. So then... Um, so then I'm now I'm working with Scott and uh, we do this wrestling movie and I get to meet all these incredible wrestlers who I'm fans of Hulk Hogan and Macho Man and Goldberg and and Diamond Dallas Page and Canyon and all these guys. And, I'm going to interrupt you for a second yeah. and tell you, you know, Scott read for your part in writing the book. No kidding, you <laughs> <Yeah>. did. When <laughs> I, I get parts from my friends, no, <laughs> no just kidding. <laughs> it's such a hustle. I mean, this whole business is so like fraught with rejection and yeah. you know, hot and cold, and 
you know, people, I don't know. It's just so, it's such a crazy business, but you have to just keep going. You have to yeah. keep, you have to like first do other things. So you're not just always just waiting for your agent or something to call. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But anyway, back to business. wrestling. Yeah. And then we'll talk about the entrepreneur, David. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so we did this thing and they wanted to promote it. And they said, why don't you come down and jump into the ring and break up a match or something? And so I did that and it got a really big pop, which is what they call it in wrestling. So audience went crazy. And so they were like, can you come back and do this, uh, fight this other guy? And Had you been a wrestling fan before Ready to Rumble? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was a wrestling fan as a kid, and then leading up to it, I started watching again and getting more familiar right. with what was going on. But I'd always watched little bits, you know, right. all along the way. Uh, I was always a Hulk maniac. So all right, <laughs> I would like yeah. so check in with him, and he'd like gone bad, and that was like a whole thing. <laughs> he turned heel, as they say, and right. then uh, so then I uh, I did it again, and we I, I fought. Eric Bischoff, and then, um, and it got a really good response. People loved it. So then they were like, "Can you stay on till the, till the pay per view, and ah, you'll become okay. the champ?" Oh, so it was rigged? Not rigged. No, <laughs> no, it's uh, choreographed. Oh, yeah, so choreographed, yeah, not yeah. rigged. Yeah. No, not rigged. I, there was some. But like, you really had to learn the moves. You really had to be able to do some it. of it. Yeah. They didn't let me do a lot, which was kind of a bummer. I always wanted to do more, and they were kind of like, "You can't get hurt. We got a really <laughs> bad." Uh, yeah, we've got high insurance premiums. They really here. did. Yeah. yeah, there was actually a thing. And the other thing was, no one wanted me to beat them up. Like they don't want to take a hit from me. And like, like you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. so, so I was like in this little position where I couldn't really do anything. But you wanted to. But I, yeah, and I was the champ. So yeah. Well, you have produced a lot of stuff. So when did the idea of doing more than acting? Well, you started producing before you directed, right? Well, we produced. Um, yeah, we. Yeah, I produced some stuff before we directed. Me and my ex did a, a like a mix it up like a, a reality show about remodeling houses, mixing mm-hmm. two people's styles together. That was our first thing. We did a few things like that. We did a show called Dirt for FX, mm-hmm. which was about the tabloid industry. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah and then um, somewhere around there is when I, I directed uh, The Tripper. The Tripper. And then we produced that. We self-produced it. We self-distributed it. Which and you, is just insisted, a complete you insisted moral. on it coming out on, uh, on April 20th, 420, yeah, 420 right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and we took a tour of a tour bus and to promote it we went to all these horror conventions yeah yeah but it made like thirty five thousand dollars like it was the biggest bust ever ouch it was such an ouch and like it just died and i was like so heartbroken but we had an amazing premiere at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. I was there. You were there. It that was so, so cool. great. It, it was, was so fun. one of the most fun screenings ever. Yeah. We is it like, in the middle of this classic Hollywood graveyard right behind Paramount Studios. Yeah. And it was astonishing. I mean, Rudolph Valentino is buried there. Yeah. All these movie stars of of yore and recently yeah. too. But it's yeah. an amazing that that was. And now they do regular screenings there during the summer, yeah, like yeah, every totally. weekend. But that was the first one, I think. Yeah, it was fun. It was really cool. 
And so what you also directed episodes of your sister's show, Medium. Yeah, she was really great. She sort of like, you know, let them know I was a director and and gave me a shot. And that was really fun. I mean, TV's interesting because it's the writer's medium. So, Mm -hmm. and it's all set up and, and the writers are even involved in the director, like the producers, everyone's like kind of. So you and and the actors know the roles better than you ever will. So right. you come in and your job is just not to mess it up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Your job is to elevate it, you know, and and keep it exciting, make it, figure out interesting shots and keep it moving and work with the actors right and so uh so it worked out really well. I mean, it was fun like in one of the episodes, I get to do a couple in-the-camera things, which I always love. Yeah. That's, like, my favorite. I love, uh, you know, like, analog stuff, like real special effects. And, right. Uh, well, know. were they still working with film on medium when you did it, or were they? I think they were, you, yeah. Yeah, no, they were. And, and it was so, great. Yeah. It's well, most recently, you directed a documentary. Well, I produced it. No, you produced it? I thought you directed it as well. No, no. Tell me about it. This is, like, really socially important. Yeah, it really is. It's The director was a guy named Matthew Cook. He was amazing. He was Oscar-nominated for um, Deliver Us from Evil. Oh, Uh, wow. That's an amazing documentary. Yeah, so he produced that and and helped edit it and all that. And um, so he directed this and uh, showed us an early cut. Me and my wife really loved it. We're huge fans of his. So we... Gave some suggestions and he liked them, and we just started working together. And uh, we worked on it for two years. He'd been working on it five altogether, and uh, it's about the broken prison system. So we get a lot of people to come and talk about it. Um, you know, you have more chance of being locked up in America than anywhere else in the world. So, uh, in the unfortunate occurrence that that happens to you, this is the survivor's guide to prison. So it tells you certain things, what to do. If you encounter an out-of-control officer, mm. you know, certain things like, uh, uh, excuse me, officer, like to be polite for one. And excuse me, officer, am I being detained? That's like a real key thing to ask them after they've like, you know, told you if you're being ticketed or whatever. <clears throat> that if you're not being detained, get out of there right away. Like yeah. little things. If you do get arrested, don't talk to anyone. Don't just say to officer, I'm exercising my right to uh, be silent. So this really is a guide to it is, but we really we explore two two people well actually three people who were wrongly accused and uh, spent decades behind bars um a guy named Reggie Cole and a guy named Bruce Lisker uh, and uh and we sort of hear their story and what what happened and how it could happen to you and that thing so it's just important we get a lot of people like we got a lot of support. Uh, Deepak Chopra's like gives us some beautiful wow. like uh, words in it about you know the real prison is the prison of the mind. We're so used to this punishment model where we're mm-hmm. just like they're a criminal, they should go to jail. But it's it's more complex than that. There's mental health issues and there's you know there's abuse and like a lot of the people that are committing these crimes have been abused and we're not addressing that at all. And a lot of the time they go to jail and. Uh, Within five years, there's an 80% return rate to state prison. So right, the, the recidivism the, rate. The yeah. recidivism rate is insane. So with 80% failure rate, it's like we wouldn't use phones if they didn't work 80% <laughs> exactly. of the time. Yeah. or We wouldn't, you know, do anything. So it's just pointing out some of those things, getting people aware when legislation comes up to vote on it, you know, 
Survivor's Guide to Prison Facebook page. If they go there, they get, they even list it. Or ARC is another one, the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. This guy, Scott Budnick's doing amazing work, really, like, you know, helping people in, in uh, uh, passing legislation, you know, making sure, like, people know what to vote on. And then also providing jobs, homeboy industries, doing oh, yeah. really great yeah, stuff. Great stuff. Well, so it, sounds like, like it sounds like you've maintained the spirituality that started in your commune days. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. My, my parents were really about all that. You know what I mean? About, you know, making the world a better place. My mom would take us to no nukes rallies. and wow, you know, that's great. Yeah, yeah and, my mom was another mother for peace back, oh, way back cool. then, and it was oh, pretty awesome. remarkable. Yeah, my um, mom marched with Martin Luther King in Chicago. Wow, so, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah, totally. So... Being a father, how did that change your life creatively? Did it change what you wanted to do as uh, an actor, as a director, as a producer? Well, uh, just as far as, like, I want to do things that they can see as well. Right. Well, you've got three kids. Yeah. One by Courtney and two by Christina. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and what are their ages? Uh, Coco's uh, just about to turn 14. Charlie's just about to turn four. And Gus is one. Wow. Just turned one. Wow. Yeah, it's really fun. We're having a great time. And, uh. Yeah, you want to do things that they could see. So I've worked with the Muppets a couple times. I yeah, so famously. Called, yeah, <laughs> a dog movie called Sea Spot Run. And yeah, yeah. I've done mutton stuff. I've, I'm working a lot with Sid and Marty Croft. I did the Yeah, you're Sigmund doing Sigmund and, and the Sea Monsters, Monsters a remake yeah. of that. That's yeah. from the 70s or yeah, something, right? it's yeah. on Amazon. It's a really fun, sweet movie. I mean, that's, show. Um, that's great. Yeah, it really. What was great was working with these legends. I mean, I've gotten to know Marty Croft really well and, he just tells these stories about like when he met Jimmy Hoffa, you know. Wow! <laughs> I was like, what? Wow! It's like what? He, what? You know? Did when he the, like HR Puffin stuff? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When they opened for uh, uh, Judy Garland, and like, oh uh, shit! When they like, were friends with Frank Sinatra and Liberace, and like all these stories, flying into Cuba right as the you know a revolution was starting. Like, oh my god! Insane stuff. Amazing. Yeah. So having kids, you, you said that Charlie's kind of a horror fan. He loves, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. I've like I play like little things. Like what I love about the old uh, Frankenstein and those kind of movies, and I remembered seeing them as a kid too, is that uh, they're just you can watch them. You know what I mean? There's nothing really gruesome that happens, and it's you know. So for some reason, I think we were at Universal and we were going through the parking lot, and there was like this Frankenstein, and he goes. What's that? And I said, oh, that's Frankenstein. He goes, Frankenstein monster. And he, he was really young at that time. But then he kept on bringing up Frankenstein monster. And and I had this bust of Frankenstein. And uh, he saw that. So then when he got a little older, uh, around this age, I st- this last Halloween, I, I started showing him like uh, Godzilla and um, and Frankenstein. Just little things like that. Like just little clips too. Not whole whole things. So did he react the way you did when you were little? Did yeah. you see those monster <laughs> movies at four and go, wow, this is the greatest stuff? Yeah, he did. And you could tell he's like sometimes it would scare him and sometimes he'd have little nightmares or something. And, you know, but he, he liked it. He'd ask to see him again and stuff like that. So do you want to direct another film in the genre? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, I have uh, ideas for it for sure. I, um, yeah, I mean, I... Yeah, I'd love to. I got. Yeah, I know you've got an idea you don't want to talk about <laughs> yeah. publicly yet. Yeah, yeah. Right. Just wanna. I do. I would like to. I've got one like thing that has 
it's not horror. It's more in the um, sort of uh, Roman times. Ah, but okay. like a lot of war and a lot of stuff. A lot but of that one's like good violence in togas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that one took me like nine years to write with Cliff Dorfman, who's an oh, amazing wow. writer. Wrote Warrior, um, and we wrote it. Yeah, it took us forever. We worked with like UCLA uh, uh, Roman professors just to authenticate it and stuff wow. like that. Yeah, but it's really like, but it's such a big movie. It's like yeah. a you know, hundred million dollar movie. It's like, they're the only ones that get made by the studios anyway. Yeah, so made, yeah. Well, good luck with that. Well, I really want to thank you for this. And I want people who haven't seen the tripper to see it because they're missing something really great. Thank and you. to see you work as a director is really exciting to me. And I just want to keep seeing what you have coming. Thank you. Know? you I love you, you and too. I love your work. I want to see what you have coming. We got excited some stuff. about your film. Uh, thank you. Well, uh, if you want to reach us by Twitter, it's at postmortemmg. Uh, Instagram is uh, postmortemgram. And to see the video interviews we've done and the making of documentaries and the like, that's mickgarrisinterviews.com. Send us your feedback. Let us know what you're thinking of the show and let us know uh, what you want to see and hear. Uh, so thanks for joining us on Postmortem and David Arquette. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Iced Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.